0: As you know by now, the book of James teaches us that faith makes a mark. A follower of Jesus is like an animal in the forest. A deer or a wild turkey leaves tracks. So will a Christian. You'll see evidence of where they've been and how they've lived and what they've done. Christians leave tracks. Unicorns don't leave tracks because they are the figment of someone's imagination. Bigfoot doesn't leave tracks because Bigfoot doesn't exist. And if he did, you can bet that some former governor would stalk him down, bag him, and then mount him on her mantle. Jackalopes don't leave tracks. Have you ever seen a jackalope? A jackrabbit with a rack of antlers? Of course you haven't, because there's no such critter as a jackalope. Imaginary animals don't leave tracks. You have to be real to leave tracks. And the same is true with Christians. Imaginary Christians, pretend Christians, they don't leave tracks. They confess a faith in Jesus, but they've never surrendered their life to Him. Thus, there's no evidence of faith in how, in why they live, and in what they do. You know, there are a lot of folks, especially here in the South, who have a false sense of security. They've walked in aisle, they've mouthed the prayer, but they were doing it because their parents expected them to, or they were trying to impress a girlfriend. Or they were just scared down the aisle by some pastor who kept dangling them over the flames of hell. It didn't really mean anything. And yet today they assume that they're right with God. Sadly, these are pretend Christians. And their life leaves no tracks. And yet the book of James explains to us that a true Christian is different. That real Christians will leave a mark, will leave tracks. Let me summarize what James has taught us so far. A genuine faith affects how we handle trials and money and temptation. Faith doesn't just stir up intentions, it provokes action. It dictates how we treat people less fortunate than us. Faith isn't like an air traffic controller taking a nap. Faith actually works. A genuine faith affects the tongue how we talk, and what we say. It doesn't conform to its surroundings. It seeks wisdom from above. Rather than blend in with the world, faith stands up and stands out. Faith walks humbly and bows to God. Faith leaves knee prints. Faith lives today in light of eternity. It endures. It connects with other believers. It prays. It confesses, it cares, it seeks to restore a fallen brother. Real faith shows up in real life. The last few few verses now in James 5, they deal with the subject of prayer. But if you look carefully at our passage this morning, you'll see an underlying theme as well, community. Yes, James champions the power of prayer, but he talks about it in the context of community. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? There's community. He says, call for the elders. That's community. He says, confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another. We're doing it in community. You see, all this talk of prayer is in the context of our church, of our fellowship, of our oneness together. Real faith talks to God, but it talks to Him for and with other Christians. We pick it up this morning, chapter 5, verse 13. James writes, Is anyone among you? Notice he assumes that we're together. And remember what we are together. We are a family. We are bound together by mystical cords. The Holy Spirit makes us one. In fact, let me say to you this morning, if the trajectory of your spiritual journey seems to be moving you away from God's family, something is wrong. You need to wake up. Pride and self-righteousness cause us to think that we can go it on our own. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us together and bounds us with inseparable cords. If we're walking with God, our relationships with each other are become, going to become more important, not less important. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, Blood is thicker than water, but those who walk in the Spirit realize Spirit is thicker than blood. Well, James writes, is anyone among you suffering? Now, here's what happens when we come together and when we realize that we're one body. We become aware of each other's needs and hurts. We're one body in Christ. And here's what everybody's body is quick to identify, where it hurts. We all can talk about our aches and pains, can't we? As a matter of fact, if I wanted to start a conversation with you, the easiest way to do so would would be for me to ask you about your ailments. Oh, we could really get you started. You'd end up spilling the beans. Rarely do we sidestep our hurts. But as we grow together, we become conscious of each other's sufferings. What do we do with them? Do we just talk about them? Do we just commiserate with each other? Do we just sulk with one another? Not so. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Think of it this way. Think of another family of little tots, maybe five or six little kids in a family. They're out playing on the playground when all of a sudden, little Johnny falls off the swing set. He takes a nasty fall. Understand, none of these kids are going to be inclined to want to treat the boo-boo themselves. They're not going to just sit around with Johnny and talk about it and commiserate with him and, and pat him on the back. Oh, no. Even though these kids are all part of one family, their first instinct is going to be to call a parent. And this is why James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. For when we have a boo-boo together, our first instinct needs to be to call our Father. As Christians, prayer should be our first retreat, not our last resort. Later, James is going to talk about how Dr. God offers a variety of healings, and he heals in a variety of ways. Yet our initial impulse, anytime we suffer, should be to pray. Before you call 911 or make a doctor's appointment, or pop that pill, you need to ask the Lord. Turn your cares into prayers. I'll never forget the couple who came up to me after a service and asked me to pray that God would bless them with a child. We prayed. And nine months later, they came back holding a baby in their arms. Think of all the money and all of the angst they saved by foregoing all of those fertility treatments. Kathy and I did some of those fertility treatments and 30 years later I still haven't fully recovered from the embarrassment of walking into the doctor's office with that paper bag holding my specimen, if you know what I mean. In the end, Zach came into the world as an answer to prayer anyway. Now I'm not saying God is against fertility treatments, not so. God uses all kinds of doctors and remedies. But before you seek a practicing physician, why don't you consult the great physician? When we suffer, our first recourse should be to pray. You know, there's a woman in South Dakota named Diane who has now received several personal phone calls from the governor of her fair state. Now, certainly South Dakota doesn't have a huge population, but it's odd that Diane keeps getting personal phone calls from the governor. The last call he made to her was to check to see if Diane was satisfied with the road repairs that the state had made. Well, a news, national news agency, they kind of got caught wind of Diane's familiarity with the government, and they asked her to explain why she was getting these calls from the governor. And this was her simple answer. I have found that shaking the tree from the top gets the fastest results. I like that. Apparently when Diane needs has a need, she doesn't beat around the bush with some underling. She goes straight to the top, to the governor. And evidently she has his ear. And this is the attitude James encourages us to adopt. If you have a need, if you're suffering this morning, you need to go straight to the tip top. You need to pray and ask God to intervene on your behalf. James writes, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. But then he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. But when one part of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices. Notice joy as well as pain ricochets and reverberates throughout the body. You know, if you're suffering, it's a sin to keep it from the people who love you. But you know, if you're rejoicing and praising God, if you're on a spiritual high, if you're riding some blessing from God, it's also a sin for you to stay silent. You should tell somebody. You know, there's a disease that's kind of running the circles among Christians today. Maybe you've heard about it. It's called cheerfulitis. Cheerfulitis. It's terminal, by the way. There's no cure. I've been told it begins in the heart and then it spreads rapidly. Soon your mouth starts to smile and your hands start to clap and your arms start to raise. And before long, your feet want to dance. And the only relief for cheerfulitis is to sing or to hum, to keep from just exploding with joy. You have to express your praise. And you know, this is where we cheat each other. Oh, we're so quick to share our sufferings, but why is it we hoard our hallelujahs? If we barked out our blessings as often as we prayed for our pain, we'd be a rich source of encouragement to each other. Hey, when folks see you coming, do they expect to be bummed or blessed? James says, if anyone is among you who's suffering, let him pray. If anyone's cheerful, let him sing psalms. And then he says, if anyone among you is sick. And the implication is, we will all be all the above at various times. Have you noticed life is like a roller coaster? You suffer some, you rejoice a lot, especially if you've got your eyes open to God's blessings, and there are times when you get ill. You know, the man that God made was resistant to disease. Adam's sinless body warded off sickness. Viruses and harmful bacteria bounced off Adam and Eve. But after the fall, cracks and chinks showed up in their immune system. Adam and Eve had to start sanitizing their hands and washing off germs. Today, humans are all susceptible to illness. I'll never forget one trip I made to Haiti. I survived the Haitian bush, the malaria, the tarantulas, you know, I made it through it all. But then on the flight home, I ended up sitting next to a lady who obviously was deathly ill. I flew and I got the flu. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it can happen to any of us. All it takes to get sick is to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But likewise, all it takes to be healed is to be in the right place at the right time. Now, You would think the best place to go if you're ill is to the hospital. Not necessarily. In fact, they tell me the odds of contracting an infection in a hospital are sky high. No, the best place to go when you're sick is to church. As long as you're not a baby in the nursery... Or as long as you don't hug a lot of people, especially me, you ought to come to church when you're sick. This is what James tells us in verse 14. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You know, it's odd that the most popular excuses I hear for skipping church is I didn't feel like it, or I was under the weather, or I had a headache. Folks stay away from church when they're sick, when that's the best time to come. Luke chapter 5 recounts the story of a paraplegic whose friends brought him to Jesus. The house that day where Jesus was teaching was packed to the gills with people. And so they had to tear a hole out in the thatched roof in order to lure this man down to Jesus. But I love how Luke prefaces the story, verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. I like that. Apparently there are times and there are places where God's healing power is more available where God shows up especially and deliberately to heal the sick. And one of God's healing hotspots is the church. Whenever you meet with God's people and you're sick, call for the elders, for the pastor and the leaders of the church and ask them to pray for you. They'll lay hands on you. They'll anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. And they will pray over you. And get this. The elders, they don't even check your health insurance to see if you're covered before they treat you. They don't charge a copay. Elders don't make you sit in a waiting room. The elders have never required anyone to pee in a cup. The elders are people who love you. And here's what they will do. First, they will anoint you with oil. Now, in the ancient world, oil was often associated with physical healing. It moistened and it cooled and it inflammation and it it renewed the skin. For some of James's readers to hear anointing with oil, it would be like us hearing, take some medicine. Hey, James, if you cut yourself, put some neosporum on that cut. You know, if you got a headache, man, throw down a few Advil. If you tear a tendon or break a bone, seek out an orthopedic. You know, the Bible never forbids surgical and medicinal remedies. God heals in two ways, supernaturally and naturally. Physicians and medicines are also tools in the hands of God. All healing is a miracle. God designed the human body to renew itself and medicines assist in that process. And yet, in Scripture, oil is definitely symbolic. The anointing of oil is a way of focusing our faith, conjuring up in our minds the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember, biblical oil is always olive oil. And olives remind us of Jesus. The garden where Jesus suffered before he was crucified was called the Garden of Gethsemane or the oil press. At the crucifixion, like an olive The body of Jesus was crushed so that we could be whole. He was wounded so that we could be healed. The cross makes possible the healing work of God's Spirit. And so here's what our elders will do. They will take the oil and they will gently pour it on your head. Probably not the whole bottle what they'll probably do is take a fingerful of oil and they will dab it or smear it on your forehead. Sort of like the old Brill Cream commercial. A little dab will do you. The application or the anointing of the olive oil now becomes a focal point for our prayers. It becomes a tangible point of contact where we can release our faith and we can focus our prayer. This also happens... When the elders pray, James says, let them pray over him. In addition to the oil, they'll lay hands on you. Not in a bad way. They're not like TSA screeners at the airport. They've got more tact than that. But they'll lay hands on your your head or on your shoulder or or if appropriate, the spot of the ailment. And, And they'll pray for you. You know, the laying on of hands works like a spiritual tag, you're it. You know, we can talk about healing all day. But when I lay hands on you, I'm saying, tag, you're it. You're next. We're now expecting something supernatural to happen in your life. Suddenly, the laying on of the hands becomes a point of focus and contact for our faith. So when you come to the elders for prayer, here's what they'll do. We'll dab on some oil. For we're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, not our own. We'll, we'll lay on hands and release our faith. We're, we're saying, tag, you're it, it's your turn. Then we'll pray and ask God to heal. And then finally, we'll expect him to do just that. You know, it's interesting. The Roman Catholic Church practices what appears to be a similar practice. The sacrament of extreme unction is where the priest Anoints a person with oil. Yet, for the opposite purpose, it's a preparation for death. How ironic when the New Testament practice is a means of healing and life. Now remember I said, when you come to the elders, the last step they'll take is they will expect God to heal and answer your prayer. And it's this expectation that becomes the vital ingredient. For it's not just prayer that saves the sick. Notice verse 15 puts it. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. People are healed when we pray, not doubting. When we pray in faith. This doesn't mean we're commanding God. This doesn't mean we're bossing around the Almighty. No way. We approach God boldly yet humbly. We just ask like a child asks his dad, we ask believing that he can do it, that he wants to do it, but he knows what's best and whether he chooses to do it, it's up to him. There's nothing wrong with asking. We need to ask. Again, verse 15 says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Not all disease is the result of sin. I hope you know that. In fact, you can get sick doing good. I'll never forget Pastor Dave, we took him down to Haiti, he wanted to go, I warned him, it might not be the best step for him, but he chose to go anyway, and I'll never forget this woman bringing up her terribly sick son, this guy was just reeking with infection, there was bacteria all around him, viruses just climbing off of him, you could see it, you could see the germs, it was incredible. But Pastor Dave, man, he just rushed where angels feared to tread, and he just walked right up to the guy and he anointed him with oil and laid hands on him and prayed. I, I prayed for him. But I did one of those kind of those charismatic moves, you know. I kind of <laughs> I kind of covered my mouth and kind of laid hands on him at a distance there and prayed for him. Well, sure enough, David prayed, but he never washed his hands and he got sick as a dog, man. He spent a night and a day throwing his guts up. Pastor Dave got sick doing good. What I'm saying is, you can't always tie every sickness to some specific sin. But there are other times when a physical ailment is directly brought on by a person's sin. Lung cancer. It's usually caused by smoking too many cigarettes, destroying your body. Sclerosis of the liver is normally the result of drinking too much alcohol. And when God chooses to heal such a person, he or she realizes, man, that they've been given a second crack at life. They not only rejoice in their healing, but they seek to be freed from their sin. Thus, they receive healing and forgiveness. Notice James says in verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice again, James is talking about healing, but the path to healing is the confession of sin. Sometimes physical ailments are psychosomatic. They're caused by the stress of guilt or shame. Often the things we've done in our past, sins that we've committed, can have an adverse effect on our health. Spiritual sins can elevate a man's blood pressure or attack his immune system or rob him of his sleep. Sometimes spiritual sins have physical effects. Often the lines etched in a woman's face are caused by the guilt she's carried in her soul. Secret sins that get buried spiritually find a way of eventually pushing up to the surface in the form of physical maladies. Sin is harmful to your health. And this is why the confession of our sin is often a key to the healing of our body. For when we make confession, God forgives us and it's like the dam breaks. The guilt is gone. The shame ceases. Our conscience becomes clean. God's peace floods over us. And the symptoms that we've suffered with for so long disappear over time. Some of you have suffered mysterious symptoms that the doctors have been unable to diagnose. And you've tried everything. You've tried drugs and herbs and all kinds of homeopathic cures. But here's what you haven't tried. You've never taken a ruthless inventory of your sins. You've never asked God to help see you as you truly are, warts and all, rather than lies and excuses and cover-ups, have you ever come clean? Have you ever asked God to help you see, you, help you see yourself as He sees you? It's time to ask God to help you get to the depths of your sin and make amends. For some of us, we won't be healed until we confess. Recently, I watched a movie starring Robert Duvall. It's called Get Low. It's about a Tennessee hermit in the 1930s who punished himself for over 40 years for a sin he had committed as a young man. In the movie, he's about to die. And he wants to host his own funeral while he's still alive. He invites folks to tell stories they've heard about him. But what he really wants to do is to tell his own story. You see, as a young man, he committed adultery. The husband of the woman killed her. And Duval inadvertently killed the husband. And all his life he has blamed himself for the woman's death. It was caused by his sin. At his funeral, in a heart-rending moment, he confesses his sin to the townsfolks who've been affected by his crime. And he tells them how much he needs their forgiveness. He asks them to forgive him. And then he makes a statement. He says, people always tell me to ask Jesus for forgiveness, but I didn't do anything to Jesus. I need forgiveness from you. Now, obviously, the Bible disagrees. You remember when David committed adultery and then went out and murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He prayed to God in Psalm 51, and he said, Against you, O Lord, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. All sin." is a violation against God. It breaks God's law, and indeed it breaks God's heart. But sin has multiple victims. Sin not only breaks the heart of God, it also does damage to others. You see, in the movie, Duvall's character mistakenly goes to an extreme. He seeks man's forgiveness while ignoring God. Whereas too many Christians today take the opposite extreme. We ask God to forgive us, but we refuse to confess our sins to anybody else. And as a result, we might be fully forgiven, but we're not totally healed. Reminds me of the teenager in his first year of college. For weeks, he just took his dirty clothes and threw them into a mesh bag. Well, on his first trip to the laundromat, he just tossed the bag of dirties into the washing machine and turned it on. When the boy retrieved and started folding his clothes, he was disappointed. His clothes were still dingy and dirty. An older lady had watched his methods and she explained that if he wanted his clothes thoroughly cleaned, he needed to unbundle them one at a time and separate them before he put them into the washing machine. And this is how you and I need to treat our sin. You see, I'll never be able to confess every sin I've committed. I don't remember a lot of the the sins I've done. I, I weren't conscious of them when I did them. But a serious confession will get as specific as possible. You know, some people just make a veiled, ambiguous, general admission of sin. But such a confession is incomplete. I need to see my sin through God's eyes. I need to unbundle my sin and separate them one at a time. In Roman Catholicism, you enter a dark booth and you confess your sins to the priest. In therapeutic counseling, you lie down on a couch and you confess your sins to a professional psychologist. Other people, and I don't understand it, but they do, they go on television shows and they confess their sins to Oprah and Dr. Phil and Jerry Springer. Then they get in fights with their mother-in-law. But God tells us to go to church and confess our sins to one another. Go to church and confess your sins. Boy, most of the time when we come into church, we're trying to cover up our sins. We're trying to put this big facade on. True confession is about living an open, transparent life. It's about emptying our closet of all its skeletons. It's about being honest with our weaknesses. Pride causes hypocrisy. Humility allows us to be real with our struggles. And God wants church to be a grace-filled, judgment-free zone. God wants church to be a place that fosters honesty and allows us to confess our faults. He wants church to be a place where we can live in real forgiveness. Well, in verse 16... James sums up his thoughts on prayer. He says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What an incentive to pray. You know, it's been said, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. God answers persistent, God-glorifying, heartfelt prayer. It reminds me of Big Ed. He went down to the tent revival on the outskirts of town to see the traveling evangelist. And after the preaching, Ed stood in the prayer line. Well, when it came his turn, the evangelist asked him, he said, Big Ed, what do you want me to pray about? Ed looked at him and said, Please, pray for my hearing. The evangelist zeroed in on that. He stuck a finger in one of Ed's ears. He slapped his hand right on Ed's forehead. And he started hollering at heaven. Well, After a few minutes, the evangelist sort of stepped back And he asked him, he said, Big Ed, how's your hearing now? Ed replied, well, I don't know, preacher. My hearing ain't until Wednesday at the Muskogee County Courthouse. (laughs) Apparently, it's not just prayer that avails much, but it's effective prayer. And it's not just effective prayer, but it's fervent or passionate prayer. And it's not just anybody's fervent, heartfelt prayer that avails much. It's the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. Now, now, let's say I got techno-savvy. And I tried to talk to you on Facebook. Here's how I think this works. First... I'd have to request you to be my friend, right? And then you would have to friend me, which means you accepted my request. Well, did you know this is how prayer works? I mean, the only people who can communicate with God face to face are those that he has friended. And God only friends folks who have been made right with him through Jesus. Thus, if you want your prayers to be answered, the first step you need to take is to get right with God. To come to Jesus. Surrender your life to Him. Pledge to follow Him. And then God will begin to hear and answer your prayers. It's the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. And then James gives us an interesting example. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. It was just a, He put his britches on the same way you put your britches on. Elijah wasn't a superman. He was just an ordinary man. Oh, he had faith, but he had flaws. Yes, Elijah stood before the prophets of Baal and called fire down from heaven. But no sooner had the flames fizzled that Elijah tucked tail and he ran away from a wicked old woman named Jezebel. At times, Elijah was strong and bold. At other times, he was fearful and wanted to toss in the towel. Sound familiar? Elijah was a regular guy who sought to live a righteous life. Here's Elijah's two-line resume. He desired to please God and he knew how to pray. And did you know if you want to work miracles, that's all that you need? a Desire to please God and an understanding of prayer. Armed with those same qualifications, you too can do great things for God. Here's what God accomplished through Elijah's prayer. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain. And the earth produced its fruit. Elijah prayed. And then he prayed again. Elijah prayed effectively and passionately. But that didn't mean that God answered the prophet the first time he prayed. You remember he had to persevere in prayer. Elijah prayed six times for rain, and not a single droplet formed. It was on his seventh try that his servant reported a small cloud the size of a man's fist. Elijah told him, you better get home. A frog strangling gully washer is about to come. And it did. Hey, like Elijah, we need to pray effectively according to God's will. We need to pray passionately with all our heart. We need to pray persistently, not just once and stop. We need to pray righteously to please God, not ourselves. Remember, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, when we pray for each other, it is a sweet sound in God's ears. But when we reach out to a straying brother, this excites God's heart. Notice verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, these last verses assume it's possible to walk away from the faith. Real faith perseveres. It leaves tracks because it's alive, but faith is like a seed. If you don't water it and feed it and cultivate it, it can wither and die. Yet understand, when a faith first walks away, it can't be dead. Not yet. If faith were dead, it wouldn't be able to walk or wander. There's still a little life left. And blessed is the brother or sister who follows those tracks no matter how faint. And finds the wanderer and woos them or turns them back. You know, when people walk away from the Lord, so many times we just wash our hands. We let them go. We don't fight for their soul. We don't go try to retrieve them. We don't understand that life can get confusing. That people can make mistakes. We don't fight for their soul we should. I've heard it said the Christian army is the only army that shoots its wounded. What kind of army fails to rescue its own fallen soldiers? Imagine me breaking my arm and then telling the doctor to just cut it off rather than reset the brake. Oh, doc, it's fractured now. It's too much trouble to rehabilitate a broken arm. Just cut it off. Who needs two arms anyway? Yet that's how we treat members of the body of Christ. We abandon them just because they're broken. Life is hard, man. People get broken. And people don't just break arms. They bruise their soul or they shatter their dreams or they break their heart. But healing is possible. As long as God is on the throne and as long as they're alive, healing is possible. We just can't give up. Who's the person you're thinking about right now? You've given up on them, but God hasn't. And He's now calling you to try and turn that brother back to Christ. We need to reach out not only to the lost world, but to fallen Christians. Well, here's a final thought. Last week, I read of a New York woman who came home to a yard littered with trash, something was in her garbage. She went to investigate when all of a sudden two large paws landed squarely in the middle of her back. A black bear knocked her down to the ground while he finished scouring through the goodies. She was petrified. And you'll never believe this woman's name. No joke. It's Joy Bear. Now how's that for leaving tracks? Trust me, Joy Bear will never doubt that black bears exist. And I want to be like that bear. Though I never would want to knock a person down with my faith. I want everybody to know that my faith is real. I want to leave behind tracks. How about you? Real Christians leave a mark. Father, we thank you for your word today and for your love for us. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts today to bring these truths home to roost. Lord, to make us more like Jesus. Lord, to to cause our faith to become more genuine, more real. Lord, that as it affects us in different ways, as as we take inventories of our life and our heart, and as we apply our faith, as we live out our lives in light of what we truly believe and all its implications, Lord, I pray that we would be a witness to this world, that people would look at our lives and realize that, that not only is our faith real, but the object of our faith is real as well. People would see Jesus through us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. Pray for this coming week and next Sunday, Lord, an opportunity to to invite our friends and to reach out for you. And Lord, we pray this morning for all of those who've who've walked away from you. Lord, I spoke to a a brother just this past week. Lord, I pray for all of those. We all know people who were followers of Jesus, maybe, maybe even people we looked up to but have now turned their back and walked away. Lord, give us the grace and the strength to reach out to those folks and to bring them back. May you go before us and work in their hearts. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.